This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the Veterans Health Administration's Strategic Initiatives Lab, StratLab? How is it using virtual reality and other immersive technologies to change how the department serves veterans? And what does the future hold for VHA's StratLab? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Dr. Ann Bailey, Executive Director of the Strategic Initiatives Lab within the Veterans Health Administration. And welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Would you tell us more about the history and mission of your office? What prompted its creation? And more importantly, how does it effectively support the mission, the overall mission of the Veterans Health Administration and VA as a whole? Absolutely. The Strategic Initiatives Lab, or or the Strat Lab, as we call it, exists to complete discovery, test, and early evaluation of emerging and high-risk technologies. Um, And when we say high-risk, we don't mean to the patient or the system, but more high-risk for failure. Uh, We do this independently of things like immersive technology, where our team has unique expertise, or in collaboration with other subject matter experts, such as how we work across um, artificial intelligence with those teams as well. Um, those teams may not have the skill set or the bandwidth to complete the earliest evaluation, so that's an opportunity for us to join and support. We also want to help facilitate the next steps based on the evaluation. So do we take this effort further or do we let it die because it, it didn't work? Um, and then finally, we want to build the repeatable processes to ease the future evaluation and early implementation of these technologies. Some of the ways we do that are through communities of practice, providing playbooks, implementation guides, things like that that basically make it easier for these things to continue to grow. The creation of the StratLab was prompted by an identified need to have a small, specially skilled team dedicated to identifying these opportunities and take on the heavy lifting of the early testing and evaluation. This will allow VA to be more agile without expending unnecessary resources on things that might fail, but if they prove effective, could truly change the landscape of healthcare delivery. And we're certainly seeing that with our work with immersive technology, like augmented reality, mixed reality, and virtual reality. I mean, it is true that changing of the landscape is such a a hot point because I think that just doing the prep work for this interview, it's amazing what you folks are able to achieve and how you've done it in such short a time. So I'd love to understand um, your specific duties and responsibilities as the executive director of the Strat Lab. Absolutely. So it's, it's an honor and a privilege of leading a very phenomenal team. That's my number one responsibility, to be quite honest, is to invest in that team. Um, We're dedicated to serving veterans, and we really don't care what that looks like. Additionally, it's my responsibility to identify opportunities that show promise and then advocate for support to evaluate those. This includes a lot of listening, a lot of networking, a lot of identifying value propositions, and then being able to effectively communicate that to some really key stakeholders. And when you, when you think of your portfolio and the duties, I was wondering, pulling that together, building an organization that is so innovative in its mission, what are some of the management challenges you face in, in this position and doing what you're doing, and how have you sought to address them? 
So the, the top three that come to mind quickly, one is doing a lot with a little. Perseverance is certainly a key part. And then finding and growing the right team. So when we talk about doing a lot with a little, it's we're, we're testing things that aren't yet proven. proven and, that, and it's certainly challenging to get support. This is where community and collaboration for us have really defined the work that we do. We build coalitions around common interests among people who quickly see the potential. And then we can go in more deeply to see if there's actually a there there. Um, and that community and collaboration, really, again, very key. And then perseverance. So the work that we do on the front end is hard. And sometimes it takes time, it takes commitment to appreciate the value of the thing, right? An example I've seen and certainly has been inspiring to me is it took Lin-Manuel Miranda seven years to write Hamilton with people telling him he was crazy most of the time. And Alex Honnold, seven years to determine his route up El Cap uh, with people telling him it couldn't be done. We're now seven years into digging in deep with immersive technology, and we've seen a significant shift in people's receptiveness, even in the last one to two years. And then finding and growing the right team. This work is not for everybody, and we know that. And we, uh, when we identify something that works and has appreciable impact, it's hard to find something that's more fun. But getting to that point requires a lot of tenacity, a lot of patience, a lot of grit, and quite honestly, a lot of humility. Um, so Patrick Lencioni calls the ideal team player hungry, humble, and smart. And that must be true of this team in the Strat Lab. We must care deeply about serving veterans and addressing the problems from the veterans' perspective, not from our own. That's a great point. So, and what has surprised you most since taking over this role? Honestly, the interest in the Strat Lab. Um, we expected in launching the Strat Lab that we would be a stealthy group that gets things done without people really knowing we exist. But I've certainly got a lot of interest and questions. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, could you tell us more about yourself? You mentioned you're a, a pharmacy practitioner, a, a pharmacist by trade. Um, what brought you to your, your current role? My own personal healthcare story, for sure. So originally, I was not in healthcare at all. Uh, but I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and a pharmacist was actually the one who helped me understand some of the most important what's, why's, how's. And I've always wanted to help people, whatever that looks like. And healthcare seemed like a great opportunity to do that. So I applied to pharmacy school, and my, to my great surprise, they let me in. But then I, I completed my residency at the VA in Asheville, North Carolina, and it was a really critical time in treatment for hep C. Um, so I spent about two years specializing in treatment for hepatitis C, where we were able to treat veterans with medication that was actually curative. And having the opportunity to do that work, I also had the opportunity to lead teams, to respond to executive leadership, shifting priorities and expectations, uh, and even manage large budgets. And so I had the opportunity um, to think differently about care delivery. Um, example, what do you do when a patient needs something and you know it can cure them, but they're not able to come to you as you go to them. So I took on the job uh, then of being a part-time practitioner and part-time innovator, starting the innovation program at the VA in Asheville. And there I met Caitlin Rollins, who was a bedside nurse at the time, exploring use of virtual reality for post-operative knee pain and anxiety. And the results she was seeing in her project were compelling to say the least. And this was with a non-pharmacological approach, right? Not using medication. Um, but we both knew we had to find a way to make this more available to our, our veterans and to support staff. 
uh, who wanted to use it in their own clinical practice. So you mentioned building a team and and leading a team uh, in your previous roles and, and now. I was wondering, how do you lead? Um, perhaps you could share with us your perspective on what makes one, what characteristics make one an effective leader and maybe share with us your leadership principles that guide you. I want to be uh, able to lead by example. I want to be a servant leader. Um, having grown up professionally in a medical center as a clinician, there are a lot of things that I understand about the day-to-day challenges and demands, and I definitely never want to forget that. Um, and in the same way, some of the work that we do on our team now is tedious, and quite honestly, some of it's kind of boring. Um, and I hate that as much as anybody, but I also know that it's necessary. So I have to remain willing to do those things and love if I'm asking my team to do the same. And I think uh, accountability, integrity, teachability, and humility are are all traits that I want to always define the type of leader that I am. Um, I have learned that leadership is very hard and often quite lonely, but ensuring that I'm surrounded by people that will hold me accountable for maintaining integrity, for being teachable, for for being humble. Um, I want to significantly decrease the chance that at any point I would lead with uh, arrogance or obstinance. What are the key priorities for VA StratLab? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring leadership with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. So Jacqueline, according to your work, why must leaders start with self-leadership in order to be more effective? What we found is that, again, getting back to so many different leadership development programs, is they'll often do 360s and often give you a whole bunch of data and feedback around how people perceive you. And that can be useful and that's important, but it doesn't necessarily help you in terms of what do you actually do with that? And so, and it's a great, another great story in the book, uh, Vincent, who is the CEO of of New West Bank um, coming out of California, and he talked about how for him, his leadership journey was, he's again, a very successful guy and and from his perspective, very self-aware. And what he realized was that although people could articulate the behaviors that they found either challenging or, or helpful or not so helpful, for him, it really wasn't until he went into the mind, his own mind that he could actually see what they were talking about and make the changes. And I think it really gets into one of the things that I think is really exciting is that our researchers have now shown that our brain is plastic, so we can rewire our brain. The other thing that we know is that it's hard to do. We, especially as we age, we get pretty set in our ways, including set in how we see the world and how we think about things. And so for a leader that is really committed to making a change, it's more than just, yeah, you know, Michael, people see you maybe as not the most collaborative leader. 
what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. And what we believe and what we've seen is that what you need to do with that is you need to actually dive in, not just self-awareness, but really awareness of how your mind works and how you can actually, by understanding your mind better, then to be able to better lead your mind better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, in your book, um, you come up with the MSC leadership uh, model, as I would like to refer to it, and obviously mindfulness is is the first quality. And you talked a little bit about it earlier. But I think I'd be remiss if we didn't delve a little deeper. What is mindfulness and how does it relate to managing – really managing one, one's attention? And what are the two qualities that make mind, mindfulness happen? Yeah. So basically mindfulness, the simplest definition is being here now. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to being unfocused, as opposed to being distracted, which is the first quality, so this quality of being focused, being fully present, Mm -hmm. the second quality of being aware. And really what awareness means is I'm aware of what's going on in my external landscape, but really being aware of what's going on in my internal landscape so that I'm not just falling um, into habits and habitual behaviors. And I'm also, to the extent that I can be, and that's a really important phrase, to the extent that I can be, aware of how I might be driven by ego biases, what we, which we talked about earlier, or other biases, which we know so many of our biases are based on unconscious ways that our brain tells us, that person doesn't look like you, you should be afraid of them. And we have to be able to overcome that. So what mindfulness actually does is mindfulness enables you to be present with your own mind and to be able to have the opportunity to cultivate greater focus so that your mind isn't susceptible to wandering, which our minds naturally wander, but in our workplaces, it's even worse. And then secondly, the mindfulness training, and there's two different types of training that you do to develop focus as opposed to the other type of training, which is to really be able to open your awareness to the landscape of what's going on in your mind. So how is self-awareness, how is it the foundation of self-leadership? I mean, why is that the case? Well, and I would say it really probably speaks to both focus and awareness. One, if I'm not focused, so one of the things we talked about and we really saw with the successful leaders is this idea of survival of the focused. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, if you are not focused, and most of the leaders that we met, they were pretty darn good at focusing. But in addition to that, focus is not just about being able to focus on one thing and not multitask, which is a big part of why we're, many people are in and a, a problem and a big problem, out, which I thought was fascinating. But in addition to that, this idea of mental agility, so being able to shift your focus, right? We talked about the complexity and why leaders are facing such challenging times today. What we really saw is leaders that could be agile in terms of how they shifted their focus. I'm here, now I'm here. That was amazing to us. And I think a really, and it's trainable. Mm-hmm. So that's really that quality of not just focus, but mental agility. But I would say in terms of self-awareness, the other thing, and just to give you another example of that, you know, self-awareness, one of the other CEOs that we spoke with, Mara McCaffrey, who is the CEO of Health New England, a health new, um, insurance agency. And what mindfulness really helped her do is she was able to start to see that oftentimes when she would walk into a leadership team meeting, she would be so enthusiastic about what she wanted to do and what she thought the organization should do that she left everybody else behind. Interesting. And so, but it, but she couldn't understand it because as a leader, I mean, that is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to bring the vision. You're supposed to bring enthusiasm. You're supposed to bring passion. But her passion bias actually made it more difficult for her to see, 
other people weren't, they weren't on board. She was 10 steps ahead of them. And the mindfulness training enabled her to, one, realize, okay, that's what's happening. It enabled her to be able to slow down, to speed up, to really be able to take a couple steps back and say, okay, how do I need to show up differently to still get the same outcome, which is getting everybody on board and sharing the vision in a way that's going to be meaningful. But how do I need to show up differently to be able to help them get there so that they can create that journey for themselves as opposed to me just being off in the clouds from their perspective. So when you're providing uh, mindfulness training or leadership training, if you get a question from someone who's thinking, you know, it's really nice, it's aspirational to be a selfless leader. What are your suggestions about being a selfless leader but not being construed as a pushover? Well, it's back to, you know, training the mind. So what we know is that, again, you know, from neuroplasticity, we know that our mind can be trained. And so the key thing in terms of for a leader that genuinely says, I want to be able to bring more selflessness into my leadership, and I don't want to be a pushover, but I really want to be able to do that, it's it's training. It's intention and then training. And at the same time, what you bring up is so important because – a pushover, like, that's not helping anyone. So if you just allow everybody to just walk all over you, you're not going to be a leader for very long. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Ann Bailey, Executive Director of the Strategic Initiatives Lab within the Veterans Health Administration. So, you know, I, when I was prepping to talk with you, I was astonished by the, the mission of the Strat Lab. And I know it's, it's the place, as you pointed out, for, um, you know, disruptive technologies to grow. Uh, and, and so to that end, I was hoping you would share with us your strategic vision for the lab and outline some of your key strategic priorities over the next couple of years, if you will. Sure. Um, so one of the the brilliant things I love about the lab is we get to be agile and evolve in the, but our, our three themes, our three, three priorities, one is innovation. So we always want to lean into doing things differently. Um, and certainly that is relevant now with what's happening with immersive technology. It's relevant with artificial intelligence and other things, again, that are disruptive and emerging. But then as we take and learn from that innovation process, we want to scale it. We don't want it to die in the innovation in the innovation space. So one of the ways that, that we're doing that now is identifying our priorities across the organization, across our office. Um, how do we prioritize things? How do we consider the intake process? And then what do we do 
um, when it's time again to to let things die, to kill them or to carry them forward. And then the third priority then to connect all three together is the systematizing of it all. So how do we take an innovation that started with an idea, a good understanding of a problem, we've scaled it now by making sure it aligns with priorities and processes and criteria. And now we want to make it normal, hand it off, systematize it so that we can start back over in the process. Uh, building out what those three things look like is the current uh, priority. There's a three priorities of the lab. So are, are there any, given what you're dealing with in terms of innovation and all the, the pace of, 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 of acceleration of innovation, are there any specific internal drivers within the department and the, and the administration um, or external trends that have shaped and informed how you're leading and, 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 and directing the Strat Lab? Every decision we make and direction we drive has to be defined by the veteran voice and in alignment with executive leadership priorities. So where those two intersect, we find our immense opportunity. The Stratlab exists to both understand where market trends are headed, where they're headed toward that intersection. That's really a sweet spot. And then also to communicate that outwardly where that intersection exists, because we, we want to maintain that problem first approach where we really understand the problems we're trying to solve rather than just finding a bunch of solutions and then try to find a problem that they align with. So, and would you tell us more about the immersive portfolio and the types of technology it uses? What is the overarching vision of VA immersive and how does this effort transcend mere technological adoption? I love this question um, for sure. So uh, VA immersive exists to define a new reality in healthcare delivery and experience. Immersive technology has grown significantly in VA over the past seven years, as I mentioned, but especially over the last three. And when we talk about immersive technology specifically, we're talking about virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, and now spatial computing, uh, with VR uh, being by far the most common in VA. And we are actually seeing that change in healthcare delivery and experience. The most amazing thing that we're seeing about immersive technology is well, it's an incredible, engaging tool or widget, the truly transformational thing is, again, that collaboration, the convening of disparate groups and systems where we're seeing that as a result of this technology. So across VA, now we have clinicians, non-clinicians, researchers, simulators, educators, you name it, um, all coming together because they realize the benefit for themselves and want to look for an opportunity to support and contribute to uh, the broader body of work. No, and uh, I was wondering, so market research into industry trends show that healthcare is among the top three industries that will remain leading adopters of uh, virtual reality and technology. What are some of the drivers for this growth in VR adoption in healthcare? I'm surprised we've gotten this far in the conversation without you hearing me say heads and headsets, <laughs> because that is certainly our mantra. Uh, we've uh, we've found that all it takes to really appreciate the value and the opportunity of this technology is to try it. Um, it's why we prioritized in-person experiences for our executive leaders, like the VA Immersive Summit, and even more importantly, uh, some that something that came from a veteran who attended the Immersive Summit and asked for it was in-person experiences for our veterans. Uh, they now happen all over the country. We call them the Veteran Experience or VXR event. And and do these um you know the, the the next question I had was around the benefits. If you can delve into the benefits of this, and and what are some of the risks and barriers of using VR in a healthcare environment? 
These are no small questions, that's for sure. <laughs> so there's increasing evidence to support uh, improvement in pain perception, decrease in anxiety and stress, um, improvement in symptoms of, dis- of depression, increased engagement with others, which you can imagine with, with loneliness and isolation um, being such a challenge and certainly impacting sort of a cascade of healthcare challenges. Um, we're finding increased engagement um, with others in a really important way. And additionally, it's an incredible learning environment. So there's evidence to support that people learn faster, they can retain it longer, they can practice asynchronously, all at lower costs. Um, and as we dive deeply and evaluate more rig- rigorously as an organization, we want to better understand how this could have an impact in access to and cost of care. There's certainly promising and emerging evidence, uh, which is exciting. Another aspect of the technology that that we really lean into is the low risk profile. Right? Cyber sickness, or some people call it sim sickness, is the most common complaint. Uh, it happens less and less frequently as the technology has gotten better, as we understand better how to use it, um, and certainly as people use it more. So. Different from a medication, if I give someone a medication and they have a side effect, well, I then have to treat the side effect. Uh, versus with cyber sickness, if people experience it, you take the headset off and it resolves pretty quickly. Um, so there's the barriers that we've experienced are not uncommon when it comes to innovation. So we're disrupting the status quo. We have to find ways to fund it. Um, there are people who tend to say no quickly and, and maybe hesitate to consider that new or different approach, right? We, we expect those things, um, but we also address them in real time and are planning ahead for that long-term strategy and anticipation, learning from, from previous innovations for sure. It's our goal to win over hearts and minds, mostly because we hear the testimonies of our veterans themselves who found benefit from this technology in at times when nothing else has worked or um, when they've been unwilling to try something. They were willing to try VR either, either out of curiosity or um, someone gave them the courage. You know, it's not hard to get on board when you have that kind of enthusiasm and engagement. Anna, I'd like to switch gears and talk about Carrie Ann Shulman's story and how it shows the transformative power of immersive technology. And perhaps you could share with us other ways VA Immersive is helping veterans with their rehabilitation. Absolutely. Uh, so I mentioned earlier, what do you do when veterans can't come to you? You go to them. And I uh, I think Carrie's story is a perfect example of, of how that's working. So the amazing thing about her story um, and one of the one of the things we truly think makes the case for immersive technology in VA is she actually found it on her own. Carrie has a degenerative z- disease and lives in a remote area. Um, so getting health care for her is hard and connecting with people is hard. Her grandchild actually offered her the opportunity to use a VR headset. And now she sees and says things like VA immersive is going to save lives by leveraging this engaging and she would say easy to use technology. We can get it to a veteran any or any patient in their home. Um, we can meet people where they are. So Gary started out fishing and then meeting with others in virtual worlds, which ultimately helped her grip sync because she was using hand controllers and her emotional and uh, mental well-being because she was connecting with others, decreasing that loneliness and isolation. So as we make this technology more available, we're, we're meeting veterans where they are and empowering them to take ownership and initiative in their care journeys. And then we're able to provide even more support um, as it's needed, when it's needed, and uh, where it's needed. So can we switch from rehabilitation 
to, and you've mentioned this earlier about non-pharmacological approaches to, to pain management, to chronic pain, and also to uh, post-traumatic stress and, and other mental challenges. How are you using this technology in that area? We are actually overseeing two different chronic pain-specific related implementations um, in VA Immersive. One is for at-home chronic low back pain management, and the other is for chronic pain and suicide prevention. This is an example I've talked about, a uh, collaboration and community. These projects are actually funded by different offices in the VA, and we just bring the immersive technology experience and the um, actual implementation. So Office of Pain Management um, and Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention, uh, again, showing the diversity of use for these devices, which is exciting. The at-home chronic low back pain implementation is using VR to deliver an evidence-based approach, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, in an engaging environment with VR to empower the patient to learn those skills at home in their own time. Uh, we're also working with uh, VA's implementation science team to evaluate and then improve, right? What do we learn from the evaluation? We want to implement that from both the, the clinician and the veteran's perspective. Um, for the chronic pain and suicide prevention implementation, is actually multifaceted. Uh, first of all, we got devices to mental health and non-mental health providers in an effort to leverage standardized delivery of the content, of mindful practice content, um, expand and to expand access to mental health supportive care without increasing the burden or requirement only for mental health providers. And then VA subject matter experts and, and uh, psychologists, clinical team members, as well as some external experts have come together to design scenarios to help veterans with experiences that may be challenging in their day-to-day -day life, um, going to grocery stores or restaurants, loud environments, things like that. Um, this is another example where they can practice those things in a safe space. And we're really trying to understand the problem from the veteran perspective, and then we can solve it um, in a way that meets the veterans' needs where they are. Mm, that's terrific. So, and you get you you have a VA immersive summit. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. When did you start? Uh, and maybe perhaps you could recap uh, some of the interesting things that were at the latest one. Yeah, for sure. So the immersive summit is one of the things we look forward to most every year because it's when everything comes together. VA staff and executives, our collaborators from industry and academia, and most importantly, veterans themselves who benefited from this technology and these efforts. Our last summit was August of 2023. We had over 200 people in person in DC and then um, more than 500 join us online. Interestingly, 100% of the people who were there in person said that they would, they want to use more immersive technology in healthcare, both at the facility and in patients' homes. And more than 92% of virtual attendees said the same thing, which again shows you the value of heads and headsets. 92% is still a pretty good number. 100% of those who experienced it, right? Um, so it's harder to appreciate the value when you're when you're virtual in this environment, ironically. Um, but this is two and a half days of just hearing from veterans and staff about their experience. Let them tell the stories and then understand where do we go next? So the consensus at the end of the summit this year was everybody wants more access to this technology. They want more training and education, both for veterans and for staff on how to use the technology and then more data. Um, on how we best implement it going forward. And can, may I ask a follow-on? Um, could you tell us, with respect to the summit, is it is it VA exclusive or do you bring in 
uh, folks from the uh, immersive technologies ecosystem? Both. So it is both. Um, okay. Yeah, it's both. So initially it was VA only, but this past year we expanded it to include. Um, we've we've had demos both times, so we have ten to fifteen vendors that are already working with VA to come and, and demo, so people can experience right heads and headsets. And these are things that are already being used with patients. So it's not hypothetical. It's it's actual. It's practical. Um, and then we bring in some of the the lead. Um, the thought leaders in the space who have been doing this research are considering the implementation for as much as three decades. Um, whereas VA is bringing that all together as that as a fountainhead to actually implement what uh, they've seen as as, as potential um, for, for 30 years. What does the future hold for VHA's Strategic Initiatives Lab? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center of This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center of This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. What is design thinking? How is design thinking being used to tackle public management challenges? Today, we'll explore these questions and so much more with Professor Jean Litka of the University of Virginia's Darden School and co-author of Design Thinking for the Greater Good, Innovations in the Social Sector. So, Jean, what is design thinking? Well, as I see it, Michael, design thinking is really just a problem-solving methodology, which on its own is no better or worse than many of the other methodologies we've already got in our toolkit. It's just different. And I think it's that difference that is what is drawing all of the attention to design thinking today. It's different in ways that make it well-suited to circumstances that are complex and uncertain. And it's also very well-suited to solving particularly human-oriented problems. So as I think of what are the key characteristics that differentiate design thinking from some of the more traditional uh, decision-making approaches we would take, it's first of all that it is, it is human-centered. It starts by placing the human being and their needs and their job to be done, as designers would call it, by placing that at the center of our problem-solving process. We obviously have to factor in the organization's needs as well, but that comes later in a sequential process. So it's human-centeredness that we begin with. It's also iterative in that we don't expect to get the answer right the first time. And so our initial solution or our initial portfolio of solutions, because in design thinking, we often want to begin with multiple solutions, um, are just places to begin a process of testing in which we expect to iterate our ideas and to work with them. And then finally, the other, the other thing that really attracts me about design thinking is that it is possibility-driven. 
so often in organizations, when we try and plan new futures or we try and think about how we can innovate or make things different than they are today, we begin by factoring in all of the constraints that are present in our current environment. Now, we know that ultimately that's important. These constraints are real. But if we begin with constraints, they crowd out possibilities and tomorrow ends up looking a lot like today. So what design thinking asks us to do is to begin our idea generation by asking what if anything were possible? And only after we've generated a portfolio of possibilities do we then factor in the constraints and begin to ask, yes, that's possible, but can we really accomplish that? So that, to me, is what sets design thinking apart, this emphasis on user-centeredness, this emphasis on being possibility-driven, and its emphasis on being iterative. So, Gene, I'd like to discuss the scaling of design thinking. Um, how does the case study of Australia's Monash Medical Center illustrate the success of scaling design thinking? How did the medical center use design thinking, and what were some of the challenges it faced while using it? One of their senior physicians came to visit us at Garden and spent a week learning the design thinking process. He became very excited about the possibilities that he saw for involving providers in decisions around how to innovate and improve the services offered. So he went back to Melbourne and enrolled a group of other clinicians and staff in online coursework that we developed here at Darden, which walks learners through the steps while they do a project in their own world that is of significance to them. What we're excited about in this methodology is this ability to scale cheaply and inexpensively. We know what it would cost to fly a whole group of clinicians from Australia to Charlottesville, Virginia to do this work. Instead, one physician came and came back and led the development of these skills in a larger group. And so what's going on at Monash is uh, the last time we checked upwards of 15 projects that really span the whole organization from issues that are as close in as getting staff to wash their hands more frequently to big picture intractable issues like how do we reduce length of stay in an increasingly aging population. Uh, in order to conserve resources and improve quality of life to uh, the story we profile in most depth in the book is their uh, mental health walk-in clinic. How do we improve the ability of these patients to stay healthy longer and reduce the interval in between visits to the emergency room for things like drug overdoses and suicide attempts? So for me, Melbourne illustrates, again, like HHS, the power of the individual and the ability to take these ideas back to organizations, invite a broader group of people into the process, and free them to look for opportunities in whatever part of the world they live in to make things better for the people we're trying to serve. Uh, now, like anything else, we know that any new initiative is more successful when we have top-down support. Monash Medical Center, again, has struggled with changes in leadership and has often uh, had to operate much more as a grassroots level. But again, as their successes grow and the evidence of what they're producing grows, increasingly it's attracting more attention from senior leaders and getting the kind of top-down support it needs. So, you know, these kinds of changes can come from the top down. Or they can come from the bottom up, as they have in Melbourne with the physician 
um, who took it upon himself to lead these efforts and kind of become an evangelist. And they meet somewhere in the middle uh, in order to make things work. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Ann Bailey, Executive Director of the Strategic Initiatives Lab within the Veterans Health Administration. And switching gears a bit, I'd like to talk about other other applications, and I was hoping you could tell us more about uh, the, the department's plan to develop an RX mental health app for aging vets, and how is VA seeking to use extended reality and digital therapeutics to create what I think they call healing journeys for specifically aging, say, Vietnam veterans that can help improve their relationship with their caregivers? That's a great question. Um, I realize in the question we're talking about extended reality, and, and we haven't said that term explicitly yet. But so most of technology, most inclusive, extended reality is more narrow when we start to put uh, headsets on people's heads. That includes augmented, mixed, or virtual reality. So when we talk about XR, that's what we mean. Um, And so this particular effort is around um, leveraging footage uh, from Vietnam to actually help some of our Vietnam veterans come to closure through reminiscence therapy. Um, It's been really exciting to be a part of this process. We're working with a collaborator here, um, showing the value and necessity, again, of community collaboration, right? Um, and then our internal experts, as well as some um, academics who have had a lot of experience in the space, and we want to bring that closure. We know closure is critical, and this is an opportunity um, to allow some of our Vietnam veterans to experience uh, Vietnam differently than maybe what they remember. Hmm. Actually, could I take a minute and just, could you define some terms for us? And I know you have, but just to have a, uh, I was wondering, so what is virtual reality and, and i don't mean technically but could you just make sure so our audience knows and then you had mentioned and defined for us extended reality i was wondering if you could juxtapose those for us again yeah sure absolutely so if we think about it sort of as a, a narrowing funnel immersive technology being most inclusive um, that could include devices that have nothing to do with anything on your head you may have seen that recently you certainly see it at theme parks where you go into a room and there may be things that help you smell things differently or wind blows in your face. Um, those, so those are broadly uh, examples of immersive technology. But as we narrow that to include headsets, things on your head, um, that's when we start talking about extended reality. And within that umbrella of extended reality, we have 
augmented reality, which is least immersive, and even actually doesn't even have to include a headset, but uh, augmented reality, you put a headset on where it does include them, and you can often see the people's eyes, actually. So they can see the physical world around them, but there's a digital overlay that you can interact with. Um, Augmented reality is usually most helpful in training and education spaces where you need to interact with your normal world, uh, but also learn things on top of it, right? So, and then we progress through and become more immersive and the most immersive is virtual reality. So when you put that headset on, you are now psychologically present in that virtual environment. A great example, and we don't use this in healthcare practice with our patients, but it helps people understand it, is what's called the plank experience. So you put the headset on, you walk into a virtual elevator, um, you know psychologically you are still in the room you were in before you put that headset on, but that elevator takes you up 50 stories and then the doors open. And all you have to do is walk out, walk forward onto this plank that may be five or six feet long and six inches wide. And the number of people who struggle to take a step forward is fascinating. but it shows the power of that psychological presence. And that's why we see the benefits with positive distraction, with training and education, with physical rehabilitation, uh, because people are psychologically present in that virtual environment. Uh, Mixed reality, the one in the middle is exactly as it sounds. You can more seamlessly with a single device pass between the ability to see your physical world and interact with it to merge into or mix with that completely immersed environment. Um, So, that's how we are. Very helpful. Thank you so much. So, um, and what is the Veterans Health Administration Innovation Ecosystem or VHA IE? What are the three core portfolios within the IE that work together to identify, mature, and diffuse innovation across the country? Yeah, that's a great question. IE, as we call it for short, um, is just one of our four main programs in the Office of Healthcare Innovation and Learning. IE is really designed to build the innovation muscle of our frontline staff through those portfolios you mentioned, the Innovators Network, Diffusion of Excellence, and the Centers for Innovation to Impact. Um, The other three programs in Office of Healthcare Innovation and Learning are Center for Care and Payment Innovation, or CCPI, to add to your acronyms list. Um, SimLearn, which actually, when spelled out, is Simulation Learning Evaluation Assessment and Research Network. Um, and then the newest is Office of Advanced Manufacturing or OAM. I was wondering when you think of all the work you're doing and collaborating across the enterprise of the department, um, how do you work with the Office of Advanced Manufacturing um, to collaborate? And and how does that, um, how does having a point of care advanced manufacturing lab complement the work you folks do? And what's the synergy? Well, that's a great question. I think the point of care part is really key. Um, Stratlab exists as a shared service to support, advocate across the whole office, right? Um, So one of the ways that we can do that with OAM or advanced manufacturing is by communicating opportunities we see for each other to demo these point of care, individualized products, um, and then get veteran feedback. So an example of that, uh, StratLab or VA immersive teammate, Evan Davis and an advanced manufacturing colleague, uh, Bill Coquera, They've been going uh, with other Office of Healthcare Innovation and Learning team members to veteran service organization national conventions all over the country, um, literally meeting veterans where they are to show them what VA is doing for them. And I think this type of co-branding showing up together shows unity in a really powerful way. Mm, that's so good. So I, I want to get a sense of um, 
I guess the not so much the philosophical aspects, but the realities you deal with every day. And and where I'm going with this is how does the sheer immensity of the VA health system, because it, it, it is at the large, I think it's the largest health system in the country, and the corresponding inertia of, of a bureaucracy that requires it to move. Um, how does it make it difficult for you or for anyone to innovate? Well, so how do you deal with that tension? I love this question. Um, it is the largest integrated healthcare system in the country. Nine million veterans, 400,000 staff, 25,000 volunteers, I think. We train 70% of healthcare professionals or, or something like that. Um, it's an opportunity. So if we can get it done in VA, it means that we've done it at scale and we've done it in a large and complex organization. Um, and VA has a long history of doing this. Liver transplants, implantable cardiac pacemakers, nicotine patches, BCMA barcoding that they use at the bedside for inpatient um, to track things. So these things all started in VA and we don't even really think about them anymore, at least not the origin, the blood, sweat, and tears that went into them uh, when we encountered them in, in our healthcare system or other healthcare systems. We want the same to be true of the successful initiatives from the Strat Lab and our office more broadly. Uh, certainly we want to see this with immersive technology. So for the rest of the question, it is also incredibly difficult. Uh, there are a lot of stakeholders that need to be convinced. They need to see the value. Uh, the success we've had to date has been because we started with empowered, supported the frontline staff at the actual medical centers and included the veterans. So when effective, it launches a tidal wave that really can't be ignored. Um, getting that tidal wave moving takes a lot of heavy lifting and hard work. But that's why the Strat Lab exists. So I'm wondering about the sort of process and operation. When an innovation succeeds and becomes operational, um, can you explain to us the process for how these innovations get to um, to the veterans in need? Sure. They should already, to some degree, be with the veterans. Um, I think including them in that process is really critical, right? Um, otherwise, there's no way for us to know if we're meeting actual needs in a way that has real potential. But the next step is getting it to the veterans at scale, <laughs> to your point. Well, yeah, to, to, we, we want to be able to maintain the ability to tailor these things to veterans across diverse regions. What we know is there are no two veterans alike. <laughs> so how do we how do we do this in a way that um, we have the ability to really meet we needs um, where they are? So. We have to have stakeholders, uh, potential long-term business owners, if you will, at the table really early on. And that includes, of course, our frontline staff, our administrators and our veterans, but also our executive leaders, our program offices, our um, regional leadership. If they're caught off guard or expected to get on board with something they've had no part in or ownership of, uh, the effort to garner the buy-in from them um, and communicate and the value proposition in a way that it, it makes sense and is helpful is actually um, the, the challenge to that increases exponentially. So we try to do it in a step-by-step -step process. In our office, we talk a lot about discover, test, replicate, and then scale as a step-by-step -step approach. Yeah, I was. You just uh, touched on that, Anne, and I was wondering how are you leveraging partnerships and collaboration within VHA and across the, the department, and possibly with other agencies, other departments, to improve operations and achieve your program outcomes. It may not surprise you that I will say collaboration and community are key. <laughs> so that's certainly the theme of what we've done. It's been critical. Uh, we know we can't truly disrupt global healthcare by ourselves. 
Um, we have a particular lens. We, as an organization, have deep knowledge and expertise in some really important areas, but we can't be experts in everything. Um, and nobody can be. So this is true within our organization, which is why we partnered with offices like Office of Pain Management um, on pain management implementations or mental health and suicide prevention or efforts related to mental health. Um, and most importantly, we've partnered with our veterans and staff. Without these partnerships and collaborations, we miss the really critical aspects of any particular problem that we're trying to solve because our view is unintentionally, but drastically myopic. Um, and we've certainly seen value of this in partnering across the government um, and with industry and, and academic institutions as well. You know, and are there any other key accomplishments that you'd like to highlight? And more importantly, what does the future hold for your office? I think there's an opportunity to uh, to highlight the fact that we've heard repeatedly that VA is the global leader of clinical implementation of immersive technology. Um we're really, really excited about that. We believe in VA's ability to affect change, as I mentioned with things um, earlier that are now normal. We wanna use our size and scale to transform global healthcare. We also think this ensures that we attract and retain the best and brightest because the opportunity to do life-changing things within VA is, is very real. Um, I've certainly experienced that myself. But I also want to highlight some of the incredible accomplishments that have happened in other programs within our office, i.e. the innovation ecosystem that I mentioned. They partnered uh, with the field to embed physical therapy into primary care, an effort that sets the example for other transformational care models. Um, Center for Care and Payment Innovation is literally designed to test and evaluate innovation um, in the business and care model space. And so there's immense potential to uncover opportunities to innovate within that group. Um, SimLearn launched SimVet program where they are um, looking at emerging technologies and evaluating them in a simulated environment to ensure safety before it ever touches a patient. And then advanced manufacturing, they received VA's first compassionate use designation from the FDA um, for a geostent a 3D printed hearing device that was designed for a South Carolina veteran with a rare form of hearing loss who got to name it. So it's actually named after his grandson, which I think is a, a cool closing to that story. <laughs> um, but VA has vast potential to lead and define healthcare innovation. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, um, so much going on and folks need to know about this. Um, it's fascinating. Um, so, uh, and what are, say, the three or so key takeaways you'd want to leave with our listeners um, from this discussion and about the work you do? Yeah. So first, I would say if you're looking for an opportunity to think differently about healthcare delivery and experience, VA is the place to do that. Um, I would also say as the global leader of clinical implementation of immersive technology, as we said, uh, we value the opportunity and appreciate that responsibility that we have to, to take this work further in building the evidence and articulating the infrastructure um, making it more normal. And then finally, when it comes to innovation in healthcare, especially strategic initiatives and, and disruptive technologies, we're really just getting started. Um, so I think the, the future is looking pretty bright. And can you speak to how you're working with the private sector to achieve your mission? Absolutely. So we have actually convened an executive roundtable to help us better understand things that we, again, we wouldn't know because we are just BA, right? So we want to make sure that we're in those open conversations and discussions 
some of the things that we think about is while we've built rigorous evaluation internally of the things that we're doing, there may be questions that aren't as critical for us to ask for our sake, but may be critical for us to ask um, on behalf of others' healthcare systems outside of VA. We as payer and provider don't have all the same obstacles that other healthcare systems might have. So if we can help build evidence that supports the expansion beyond just the healthcare, we want to do that now versus five years from now when people say, well, it would be nice if we knew X. Um, and so we're leveraging that roundtable to better understand that as well as um, colleagues in academic institutions and things like that. That's wonderful. That's that's a good point about the unique perspective of the VHA being a, a provider and a payer. Uh, so, Anne, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? Do it. <laughs> if you have any desire to serve, to do good, uh, there's immense potential to affect change that lasts well beyond our years um, in public service. I think it's eye-opening in a lot of ways. Some of them are good, some of them less good, but Either way, if you're paying attention in public service, it's hard not to be motivated to serve more and to serve better. Um, Working for the VA for me has certainly been the greatest adventures, one of the greatest adventures of my life. I've learned and grown more than I ever thought I could, and I still feel like I'm, you know, just getting started, as we said. So where else could you have these kinds of opportunities and serve such an important um, and deserving group of people? So, and before I close, I was wondering, there's so many interesting things you offered us today and so many important things you guys are doing. If folks are peaked, if we've piqued their interest, how can they learn more about your office and the Strat Lab? Absolutely. Uh, so our webpage is innovation.va.gov. And we'd love to have people go and explore there. There's a specific VA immersive section. Um, and also, if they have questions about immersive technology and VA, we have a, an email address, immersive at va.gov. Wonderful. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on and talk to me today. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to speak with you and all that you're doing to amplify this work. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Ann Bailey, Executive Director of the Strategic Initiatives Lab within the Veterans Health Administration. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, Audible, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. What are the characteristics of an entrepreneurial mindset? How can government and entrepreneurial ventures work together to address significant challenges facing us today? What does a thriving venture meets mission ecosystem look like? And what is the future of government venture arrangements? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Arun Gupta, co-author of Venture Meets Mission, aligning people, purpose, and profit to innovate and transform society on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour.